Well, hello everyone. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Struggle Session. I'm Jonathan Daniel Brown. I'm Leslie Lee the Third. And Jack is uh well, he's back from his honeymoon, but we still haven't quite hired him back on yet. We haven't made uh, well the lawsuits are still pending because I, I didn't expect him to sue us like while he was on his honeymoon. I thought he would wait till we get back. Yeah, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could actually sue someone while you're in a different country, but it turns out that as long as there's a lawyer in America, a lawsuit can proceed. So he sued us from Thailand. He said, we've got to get him back on the show. Uh, yeah, all the proceeds we'll that we've co- all the proceeds that we've collected while he is, was away are 100% his. Um, th- he's he's claiming that all of this is his IP, which of course all you strong s- session um, heads know that's not true whatsoever. Um, we stayed on the show that Jack actually did nothing. I've actually started you know reposting the old episodes with Jack um, cut out of it, just in hopes that his lawyers haven't downloaded it yet. So. Yeah, um, we're going to erase Jack from history since he's trying to sue us. Um, yeah, we're going to do uh, what uh, the, the, the new Death of Stalin movie is doing with Jeffrey Tambor, just erasing him from every poster, pretending he... There, what Jack? Who's Jack? I don't know Jack. Yeah, so um, screw you, Jack. Um, and you, welcome back gone. from fucking Yeah, welcome Thailand back from your, your honeymoon. With your honeymoon and your married life show off. Today we got a very special episode today. Uh we have two very, very talented filmmakers uh, who have made a movie that I really like. So that's always fun to do. Uh, we have the directors of Happy Hunting, which you can now watch and stream on Netflix. Uh, any other services it's on? I think it's, pretty much everything. Yeah, any, it's on any it's, sort of VOD centric services. Amazon, but, uh, maybe. It's, it's, it's on the whole download panel. So uh, please welcome Joe Deitch and Louis Gibson, directors of Happy Hunting. Hey, guys. Hey, hey. We didn't know what we walked into with this whole uh, this whole Jack thing. Yeah, yeah no, he's probably going to see you two. Um, Maybe it's a bad well. day. No, yeah. it's, it's always a good day to record an episode of Struggle Session. <laughs> so full disclosure, <laughs> I learned about this movie through my friend Joe Toronto, who produced my short film Horseshoe Theory. And uh, I also know uh, the producer Bryson Pintard. They are good guys. Uh, so that's how I met Joe and Louie. And they showed me the movie and I was blown away because this is, it's very rare that you see a movie that is made for an extremely low budget that is openly willing to talk about the disconnect between the rich and the poor. And it's very rare you see that in a really fun horror movie package. So I was really blown away by Happy Hunting because it takes a lot of the themes that you've seen in past movies uh, that that deal with sort of like the rich guys hunting poor people for sport genre movies like you know the purge or the most dangerous game and it and it really 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 modernizes the concept and puts it in in probably what feels like the most uncomfortable and yet potentially accurate depiction of a uh, of of broken America yet. <laughs> Thanks for having us on, guys. This will be fun. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to, a lot to unpack. <clears throat> yeah, to be honest, I actually had a, had a dream about your guys' podcast last night. A dream? I had a dream about it, yeah. It was my dream. I was like, I've been having these really like lame dreams lately where I just work on stuff. I just do like work. And I had a dream that I'm like, oh, I want to like make sure we're like prep for JB. I don't want to like, let him down. And I had a dream <laughs> where I wrote down this like great list of things to talk about. And then I woke up and I thought it was real. And I was like looking for my list before I left and realized <laughs> that it was just a dream. Oh. But they were like good things to talk about. And I, have, I don't remember what I did. They're all more. gone. They're yeah. all gone. Yeah. Um, 
I, well, I had a dream last night. I was in a hot tub with Ms. Pac-Man. So you had a <laughs> you had a better dream than I did. Mine was potentially more productive. I just didn't I didn't take anything away from it. Like they were like good. It wasn't it wasn't like weird dream like things either. They were like very valid things for us to talk about, and I just I lost them all. So. JDB, no more deviant art after seven p.m. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. You but stick I, to the hentai in the morning, and yes, then yeah. that's how so, you have a productive evening. I so I just got finished watching it like five minutes ago. Very interesting oh. um, movie. Very um, so I just want to know like it was super timely and relevant. Did you? Um, when did you start making this film? You started writing the movie in 2015, I think. So what you're saying is you knew that Trump was going to be elected before anybody else, basically. We knew. He told us. (laughs) Yeah, because this is 100% a horror movie about Trump's America. (laughs) Yes. Do do you know what? There there definitely are some parallels there. We can't take credit for all of it. Definitely some of it is just... I mean, sure, but... You know, like like without ruining it, you know, he's trying to get to Mexico and there's a border wall in there yeah. and everyone kind of points to that. But, you know, growing up in California, like Joe and I did, that's just always been a topic uh, of conversation. Um, that's but, always been there. I mean, I think the movie touches on a lot of sort of hot button issues in America, this immigration, income uh, t- disparity, all these things. And in writing, like we started writing it before Trump was running for president. But I think that we were sort of drawing on a lot of issues that get people talking. And I think he was just drawing on a lot of those same issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's uh, let's get into the plot a little bit. The movie's about a uh, – it's about an alcoholic named Warren who after a meth deal goes bad, he ends up on the run and finds refuge in a little town called Bedford Flats in – is it? Is it? It's near the border. Is it explicit which state it's in? Is it in, in Texas? the script? In the script, it's Texas. Yeah, uh, that's what in, I think. In the movie, I think it's sort of where where you we want. We keep it, it a little. It vague. could be California if you wanted it to be. You know, and everybody in Bedford Flats is awfully friendly, awfully folksy, and there's this real sense of camaraderie and community. And Warren goes to an AA meeting and gets immediately welcomed in. But what he doesn't know is that he has actually been recruited into the an annual festival where every year the undesirables, the poor, the criminals, and the trash are gathered in the town square and then hunted by the leaders in the community for fun. And uh, so this movie then follows Warren as he has to fight his way through an extremely, extremely psychotic town filled with uh, sociopaths with every kind of weapon you can think of, baseball bats, Machine well, guns. it's actually here. Here's the thing: the twist really is like it's not a town of sociopaths; it's just a town of Americans. Yes, like they're just regular. <laughs> they are regular folk, That's and right. like they actually make the point: like, well, we don't do this every day. It's just like one time a year we uh, get together and kill the undesirables. You know, it's not something we always do. It's not uh, like our main uh, focus in life. I think that what separates it from certain. Um, other films in this kind of weird town genres like the thing is the town isn't weird it's uh it's is the towns that we pass through and live in and and grow up in they just have this one tradition that kind of explicitly does what we all do uh implicitly like they don't um put the criminal in prison where he you know has to suffer through abuse and get murdered they just do it themselves on one day a year and then it's not that different or 
odd, really. And that's why the movie felt a, a little bit more real than some of the other films in the genre. I, remember I had an interesting encounter as a lady after a film festival uh, in the Midwest somewhere came up to me. And she's like, hey, you know, I really, really enjoyed it. And she's like, I really, uh, I really felt like you guys captured the hunting culture well. I'm like, did we? I hope, I, I hope not. <clears throat> like, she's like, yeah, you really showed like what it meant to these people, and I'm like, I, I, yeah, it was apparently more accurate than we than we thought. But, um, yeah, they have their own kind. Of, yeah, I, I guess that's fair to say. Yeah, they followed trigger discipline, you know. Yeah, I mean, within their community, they have their own kind of justice in place, which you know, once upon a time, I mean, you know, not too long ago. Yeah, wouldn't you know? Have, you know, maybe that wouldn't have been so rare. You know, oh, public not executions not and the whole thing. So uh, maybe some of them were getting taken down for, you know, maybe it wasn't justified. I think the last public execution in the United States was in the 1930s. Really? Not that long ago. And I think you, we were talking about this the other day. I think you can still request hanging in some states, which is crazy to me. Yeah, a guy in uh, Utah just request or a couple of years ago, he got executed by firing squad per well, his what request. What a fucking beast. Like, you know what the thing I, is, I would go firing squad. You know though. what? Yeah, you like, know what the thing with the firing squad is. Why do they always wear the um, blindfold? You always see in the photos. Do you have to wear the blindfold? I would feel like I would rather see. It's not the for bullet you. coming. See, yeah, it's not for you though. It's for them. It's for them. So it's they don't for have to the see shooter, your eyes. Because every shooter can think, oh, maybe I'm the one who has the blank in the gun. Maybe it wasn't my bullet that fired, and I don't have to look this guy in the eye before I blow his head off. So it, it's got nothing to do with, with the actual uh, guy being executed. They couldn't give a shit. It's all Well, the about, guy being executed always has the blindfold on, though. Yeah, that's right? what, I, what I mean. But it's all about protecting the shoot. Like the, 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 they don't have to look him in the eye. The uh, right, okay. Have to make I always contact. thought it was for that guy. I'm like, come on, man. Just like, I, I yeah. feel like I, I would want to see it, you know. That's worse way. I would want to see it too. I mean, actually, I think one of the most powerful, and you know, I don't want to get too much into the spoilers, but there's a scene where uh, the sheriff, Sheriff Burnside, is speaking to his son or his his grandson Junior. And uh, full disclosure, I worked with Kenny Wormold, who plays Junior in Kid Cannabis, about four years ago. And uh, you know, the Junior asks the sheriff, like, so you know, people say what we're doing is cruel. How can you know? Is this is what we do cruel? And the sheriff says, you know what's cruel is when you go into the big cities and you see homeless people dying in the streets and you see people rotting in jail cells and you see people starving to death. What we do is more humane because we just get it all over with. We just kill them, get rid of the undesirables, get rid of all of the people and end their suffering and then we can go back to our lives. By doing this once a year, we are actually doing the ethical and moral thing. So uh, let, let's talk a little bit about... Uh, the, the conception of the film and how it came about and how you pulled it together with, I mean, what was it like something like, I mean, the movie cost less than a hundred thousand dollars. This is not an expensive. It, film. it was a hundred grand. About exactly a hundred. Yeah. And you can't tell. I mean, so Deech, Joe Deech, you, you were the cinematographer, right? And, and Louis, you, you mainly, uh, did, did you like to split it up where Louis, you deal with the actors and Joe, you deal with the shots or we kind of split it we up mix and match. match a little bit, but you know, I think we had, it, it, it helps to have some sort of a delineation on set. We talked a lot beforehand. We'd shot listed everything, obviously with something like that, you know, we did it like on basically like a 20 day schedule and really, really small crew. You'd mentioned, uh, Joe and Joe, uh, Toronto and Bryson and it was us and you know, two other people and we were kind of just running around. So 
you know, we had to have a pretty good idea of what was going on going in because we were just handling setups. So, um, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, I mean, but we split it up. If I can share one of my favorite uh, Twitter comments on the film, uh, someone wrote, "A lot of scenes in this movie look pretty cheap for what their budget was." <laughs> this person obviously had no idea what our budget was. That's yeah. the best. I love when people shit talk on Twitter. It makes me like happier than anything in the world. That's like the only Twitter comment ever where I'm like, I kind of want to hit this guy up. It looks, it looks really expensive for what the budget was. And some scenes kind of just look, look like what the budget was. Yeah. And to, uh, and, and you shot this all, um, by the Salton Sea, correct? Yep. Salton Sea down in India, a little bit up in Barstow and Ridgecrest, uh, but primarily in uh, the town of Bombay beach, which is like three hours outside of Los Angeles. And uh, talk a little bit about Bombay Beach and talk a little bit about Oof. what life is like in that part of California. It's kind of, well, speaking of towns. Well, it's basically the town in the – it is – like the real town is the town in the movie. There's the – except they don't hunt people that I'm, I'm aware of. That we know of. <laughs> There's a couple – like um, like anyone who looks like – a real motherfucker in the movie is a real motherfucker from that town. Like, you know, there's a city without ruining, there's like a guy who, you know, there's all the cutaways where the people listen to the radios and listen to the hunt. And there's a guy who's this shirtless dude sitting on the roof of his trailer, listening to the radio. And that's just Roger. And that's just where he sleeps. And we were like, Hey, Rogers. Yeah. Shout out to Roger and Vince. Uh, uh, you know, you know, we're like, Hey, uh, he, he told us that's where he sleeps at night. And we're like, Oh, can we just come over and film you? And he's like, sure. It's, ba- it's basically a town that sort of in the 1950s and 60s was supposed to be uh, Palm Springs. It was going to be like a tourist uh, destination. And through sort of a series of events, uh, I think the, the ocean next to the town became super salinated. All the fish died uh, and the whole industry there fell apart. And sort of people, I think a lot of the people who live there, I think had parents who maybe brought property there in the 60s and kind of moved out. And there's not really any economy. It it looks really dangerous, but when you actually just hang out there, the people are really nice. Yeah. And there, there's really so little industry there that there's also no crime. Yeah, they so, police. They like police themselves. And it was weird because you'd bring people down. You know, it's like this little like grid system with like you'll see if you looked in the movie, the drone shots, that's the town. And it's this little grid system. And, you know, there's not street lights or anything. And at night you could walk around but it was weird because you'd almost you'd feel safer than you did like walking through la so Mm. it was like really bizarre but anyone you'd bring like actors you bring you know you'd bring them at night they wouldn't know what it looked like they'd go to sleep they wake up in the morning and they come out and they think they were on mars you know and they'd be like where am i they'd be like freaked out hills have eyes but the people yeah like what joe said the people were like really kind really nice Um, it looks like another world reality is that's you know a two and a half hour drive from la so and it's really remarkable. It's one of the reasons why Southern California is still the best place to shoot stuff is that you can get a zillion climates within <laughs> two hours at most, you know? Yeah. You want to get the snow, you can get the snow. You want to get the desert, you can get the desert. You want to get the forest, you can get the forest. You want to get the city, you can get the city. You want to get the small town in the middle of nowhere, you got it. Uh, and we definitely wrote the movie for that town, but also sort of for all the desert locations around there. That was part of our thought of like, well, if we don't have any money... You got to just go shoot somewhere where you can put someone in the middle of the desert, use natural light, not have to rely on set building or studio days or anything like that. Because you see like a $50 million studio movie, if they're shooting someone in the middle of the desert, there's 100 people standing around, but it's still just an actor and a guy with a camera. 
and a guy with a bounce card. Yeah, and it takes about 10 million times longer for, you know, to set up a shot because everyone has to move around and do their thing. Like, what was the, what was the like, record for amount of setups in a day? I, don't I think remember, the most setups know. we did in a day was 120. Okay. <laughs> so we were like, you know, we had to, like, crush on it. But, um, yeah. But, but that's the other thing, too, talking about just, just independent filmmaking. And you're talking about California's. Yeah, like, you know, like Joe was saying, we wrote it for that knowing, you know, we, we had another script we had written that kind of was fun before that, but it ballooned out to a budget that, you know, as, you know, quote unquote, first time directors, no one was going to obviously come hand us over money. So we kind of thought, okay, what could we do? So we whipped that up knowing where we could go, knowing that if you go outside of LA, you can most of the time either shoot places for free or pay someone, you know, what you have. And they're happy to let you come and do it because you're not, it's not jaded by, you know, right. LA one of, and all the people. One of the things about Los Angeles that makes independent filmmaking so difficult is that location fees are just astronomical. Any owner of any property will charge you maximum to shoot there because they know that this is what people come to Los Angeles to do. Now, granted, they're sort of killing themselves in the process because people are shooting in Los Angeles and California less and less and less. You have, and even the studios are going to, you know, Atlanta, North Carolina, Vancouver, London. Uh, you know, why, why, uh, why, why pay the owner of a diner a shitload of money when you can just go to Pinewood Studios? So, yeah, it's crazy. They're kill- I don't. Yeah, they're killing there themselves. There was a shoot I was doing where we went way out into the desert. We were looking for this empty desert road. Found a great road. Uh, come to find out that it's at the very edge of Los Angeles County. So the road was $10,000. The exact same road, like half a mile over out of Los Angeles was like $400. Yeah. When we, um, when we shot horseshoe theory, uh, we had to leave the city of LA and go into Kern County. And in Kern County, when we said that we were shooting a short film, the, the permit office was so excited because they just, they just mm-hmm. don't get calls yeah. to shoot, which is crazy to me because as far as desert goes, you really can't beat that. And uh, they just gave us a free permit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, but, but in Los Angeles, yeah, you're talking thousands of thousands of dollars a day at a very, very Yeah, and I think a lot of it, it was split between Imperial County and I figure what the other one was. But it was like Inland Empire and Imperial County. And it was like, hey, uh, you're going to shoot for three weeks. Well... Just pay us five hundred dollars, and you can yeah. shoot for three weeks. It, it it like blankets the entire county. It's like oh great, so it's definitely uh, yeah. yeah we, we would have never been able to shoot in LA County this movie for that price. It and it really been. shows it really shows how the studio system has completely dominated the industry and sort of created an ecosystem where only they can thrive uh, as things get more and more expensive. Uh, independent film is definitely under threat in California because, for example, we have a tax credit office that really absolutely gives all of its money away to Disney and to Warner Brothers and to NBC and pretty much anybody but, you know, the type of people who actually need tax credits, the type of people who can't afford to, to make, uh, you know, films that, that, that take advantage of California's uh, topography and climate. And yet, very often, despite the tax credit system we have for these massive corporations, they don't even film here half the time. So... I was. I'm always excited to see a uh, a film get shot in Southern California, an independent one, because it, it's proof that it can still happen. Uh, let's let's uh, let's dig in a little bit back to um, 
the 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 plot of the film and and the world of the film. So I'm curious, uh, uh, why why did you want to make this film, this particular story? Hmm. It's a good question. It should be a lot easier to answer. Um, it was, I think it was that fun. It was, it was finding sort of a fun hook on the premise. And then I th- it definitely started with the idea of, all right, we're going to do what can we do for cheap? I think it started with the desert, honestly. Uh, then the idea of, of following this character and sort of saying, what, what's a different twist on this sort of human hunting genre and adding the idea that the character is an alcoholic. And if he doesn't stay drunk the entire movie, he goes into a withdrawal and sort of having that hook was able, you know, something that. That was interesting to us, but I think the reality is with with movies like this, it sort of becomes like, what are your resources? What do you have? If you're going to make a movie for a hundred thousand dollars, you have to kind of know that you have access to everything. Mm-hmm. You you can't write uh, some sort of pie in the sky concept and then hope to go find it and build it. You're just not going to be able to make the movie for the budget that you want to. Um, so I think it was sort of like bowling with bumpers on a little bit. Like we sort of knew, okay, here are the the constraints that we have. So within these resources, what what kind of a story can we tell? And I think it sort of evolved from there as we you know found themes and characters and you know then explored stuff in a more uh, traditional sense. Yeah, we have been down the road, like I said before, of trying to write something and then trying to go get the money, and it just was like such a. It just you know it's it's hard to get anything made, and it just is like it, you know it was such a pain. We were sitting on something for like two years, and we're just eventually we're like, well, we got to go make something. So um, Joe had had. I think you had had probably like some idea of that concept written down somewhere, and, and the hook was fun. I think I, I think I wrote the hook down in high school. Yeah, just like some like oh, this would be a fun thing to do. But the, yeah, no. the hook, you know, the hook is fun, and you know, it's like yeah, you've you've seen that, but if you can bring some little new angle to it, then people know what they're looking for and they'll like it. Hopefully, so. And then I, I think I think we started writing it, and then we found to us like the main character in the movie is a very sort of like Clint Eastwood strong and silent type. So I think we started having a lot of fun writing the characters in the town and finding out what they're all about. And I think that's where a lot of those uh, themes emerged. Of, um, but but the differences between uh, the character that, uh, that, that Martin plays, Warren, versus Clint Eastwood is that Warren is constantly withdrawing from booze. <laughs> I feel like so is Clint. If you, I feel, yeah, like, he, I feel like he always has a hangover whether they... Say it or not, if you watch like Outlaw Josie Wales, he's always like pissed off, like, eh, like sitting out in the trees. But uh, no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways, ha- Happy Hunting is just sort of a secret Western, but no one likes yeah. to make a Western. Well, anymore. there's Western elements, but then there's also, you know, we can talk a little bit about branding and the independent film world. If we're, if this film were to get bought by, say, a, a Bloomhouse type company, and they, we saw with Cloverfield, what they started doing was they started buying these. Uh, independent and low-budget studio films and then slapping the Cloverfield title on. If if uh, Bloomhouse was to buy this and call this a spinoff of The Purge, even though it has nothing to do with The Purge, people get so attached to branding that they would immediately go, oh, what's this? And what... You know, what, what people don't realize is that actually uh, most movies are not attached to fucking brands. And so when you have a small movie that hits the exact same themes as some other horror movies and does it even better than the big guys, that's something to be lauded. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think... Uh... No, it's been, it's been cool to see it sort of be compared to The Purge and movies that in my head are much more real. Mm-hmm. You know, to us, it's to me, it's like having made the movie. It's very hard for me to see it as a real movie, right? Yeah, yeah. because you're there on set, and you, know, you just sort of like, if I if I watch it, 
I see the shot on screen, but I'm also like aware that we were just standing around in the middle of the desert. Um, so it's, it's interesting to sort of have people compare it with the purge and, and, and things that I would consider to be more. Yeah. I mean, we were staring established. at established. We were staring at a computer screen for, you know, we were watching it on that for, you know, six months, getting all the posts on ourselves. And then all of a sudden, yeah, it's like, Oh, it's on Netflix. I'm like, Oh, should that even be on there? <laughs> it, it's a weird thing to like, when you cut a movie on your computer and then at some point you're watching it on Netflix on your computer. In my head, it's sort of like just gone from my computer back to my computer. Yeah. Like, it's like, I assume no one else is able to see it. So let's talk a little bit about that because it used to be that if a movie were to go direct to video, direct to Netflix or, or anything like that, it was an indicator of it not being quote unquote good enough for a studio yeah. release. But about five years ago, that dynamic completely shifted. And a lot of that is because of companies like Netflix and streaming services like Prime and Hulu. Uh, people and the studio movies are now so expensive that if they're not attached to, you know, franchises that already exist, they just probably won't ever get a theatrical release. What was it like premiering at ScreamFest for you guys? And how do you feel knowing that the 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 goal as filmmakers has sort of shifted from getting a movie into 2,000 theaters to getting a movie into 7 million homes. I think it's cool. I mean, obviously it's great if you can, you know, if you could get on 3,000 screens across the country, that's awesome. But I think you're definitely reaching more people by going the digital route anyway. And I don't really see it as, uh, I think the way the landscape has changed is obviously great. I mean, it makes you accessible to, I mean, there's people now like around the world that people in Germany watching and they can watch it on all different players. It's, you know, I don't even, how many, it's like on every single player now. And I feel like you're going to be reaching more people for something like this specifically anyway than you. Yeah. I think it became a game of eyeballs. It's just how many eyeballs can you have on it? It's less, you know, I think previously doing a theatrical release was the way to get eyeballs. And that's just not the case anymore. You know, when you're doing a theatrical rollout, you're doing the cost equation of like, it costs, you know, uh, I think probably three to $5,000, I would guess, to put a movie into a theater screen. And if you're not going to make that money back on ticket sales, right. it's not worth it. Because you know, people, people just aren't going to movie theaters anymore. You want to put it in, in like, you, you know, a run of like uh, 10 theaters or something, then you can say, you know, available the same day as it's in theaters. But you're really only in those 10 theaters, so you can claim that you're releasing the movie on the same day as it's in theaters. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I see, like, it's crazy. I mean, like, I watch, like, kids watching movies on their phone, like, on their iPhone, which... I would ne- I would never watch a movie on my iPhone, but I mean people do it. I mean I'll, maybe I'll watch YouTube on it, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean the whole landscape has changed. I, I think it's great. I think it probably, you know, it's you know, and all the studios now are trying to bite on that. They're trying to get creative and they're trying to, um, especially with movies like all these Blumhouse movies that are crushing out for cheap, where everyone's trying to, you know, rip on that now and do the theatrical. And they're you know. Um, I think moving forward, we're, you're going to stop seeing the $20 million movies mm-hmm. and the $30 million movies. You're doing, you know, sub 5 million or plus, plus 100K, you know, right. Yeah, you There's nothing in between anymore. So I think unless you have that. Well, because America is losing its middle class. I mean, that's the middle class movie is a casualty of sort of the cultural flattening of our 
of our of our streaming, uh, you know, quote unquote. Well, look revolution. at uh, I mean, uh, what a movie pass, right? You have movie pass. Do you have movie? I I don't have it. I but like everyone has that now. And what do you pay? Like fifteen bucks a month, and you can go watch as many movies as you want. It's right. like a movie a day. We don't even know how they make money. How, how I think they, they don't. don't. I think they're yeah. just stealing <laughs> our information. Is that just a promotional <laughs> thing to get people in? on people like me to buy it and then? Forget it's like a gym pass, you know. I buy a gym. I have a gym pass. I haven't been in like six weeks, you know. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm paying for it. Yeah, but. Leslie, I think they either sell our data or they just yeah lose money Amazon style until one day so, they they just win by virtue of having the 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 VC money to keep them afloat. Yeah, they have control of everybody buying movie tickets, and so then they can. Um, bully the movie theaters into giving them a discount deal. I think like that's why I heard the, their plan was basically either selling data or just taking over the market of buying movie uh, tickets, and then that gives them power over you know negotiating prices or whatever. Yeah, well, you know, the, the same way that Amazon Prime is now beginning to open bookstores, I would not be surprised if in the next five years Netflix opened a movie theater. Not at all. Like because of the the you know it starts out with with you know these these hyper capitalist Silicon Valley companies. It, it, the goal of disruption isn't just to to create like a level playing field and to disrupt whoever was making all the money before. It's eventually it's to take over. I mean that's what capitalism is. Well, I don't so. I, I don't see a problem with that. I mean, who doesn't want to go and watch Master of None inside a movie theater? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Do you find that you are competing with Netflix originals and competing with series that are actually developed by the platform? I guess a better question is like how like um how do you know how well your movie is doing when it's yeah. on Netflix? We do you don't. They don't tell you no, anything. No, 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 no. No one tells you anything. Yeah. Like um, I think, I don't know if Netflix, I, I know off our other VOD stuff, I think they're going to tell us uh, quarterly or something. So we'll see whenever they give us those numbers. We'd be interested to see for, because we, did we didn't go straight to Netflix. We did a VOD rollout where we went like, you know, every, all the platforms. And then after I think about six months, three months, something like that, I went to Netflix. But from what I understand, Netflix doesn't, they keep all their data. I will say when I go on to my Netflix, uh, Netflix always seems to really think I'm going to like Netflix originals. Yeah. They always, they always predict five stars for me. That's, that's not so it's odd. Always, it's so interesting that the shows that they pay for and make take priority over the shows that they uh, buy. Apparently, I, apparently I'm, I love Altered Carbon. Uh, and I watched it and I, I, don't, I don't know if I loved it. <laughs> I liked I liked the pilot. I just How much stuff it. do they make now? I swear, I wa when you drive down, like if I drive down Melrose now, every billboard, like billboard to billboard is Netflix all the way down the street. And I'm like different shows. I'm like, what is that movie? What is that show? They're just dominating. Yeah. For, for our listeners not in Los Angeles, I did not realize this as a native Angelino, but the billboards every block – for movie and TV stuff is actually not normal in the rest of the no. country. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Every other block is it's a billboard. Netflix. It's all Netflix. It's now, all Netflix. Which is crazy. Now. And I'm like, what the hell is that? Like, there's so many shows and things. They must just be. I, I guess they're just playing a numbers game. Oh, and it's funny because everyone in LA already has Netflix. Right. So who are they advertising? They're to? doing it for themselves, I guess. It's it's two things. It's prestige. And it's 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 yeah. and it's like waving Worldwide. their dick around the city to make it clear like we we own LA now, and it's too it's it's they are they are constantly at this point national growth is not a concern for them they are they have expanded into like fifty fucking countries, 
And it's just pure international growth at this point. And Netflix is different in every country. So yeah, like yeah. the catalog's totally different. No, we, for sure. When I was in Canada, a bunch of stuff that was on Hulu and CBS All Access was on Netflix there. Like, mm-hmm. it's just every country has its own set of, uh, of licenses. And the crazy thing is that Netflix is $20 billion in debt. So they are just spending so much money and grinding everyone down with the, but, but like so you know sort when of it a comes war of attrition at some point right. you know hulu hulu i think lost 900 million last year oh, this really? year they're they're going to lose 1.7 right. billion i think was that was the statistic so disney what disney's going to do i've read is that disney when they buy fox they're starting their their streaming service and it's only going to be family friendly stuff and then what they're going to do is they're going to pump the fox catalog into revitalizing hulu it yes. is. We are reaching sort of like this weird, you know, singularity point where there will be so many, you know, I, I a couple of months ago, I spent a month on brownsugarvod.com, which was, you know, a subscription <laughs> service for, for black cinema from the 70s. Uh, I, know I thought that, it was like, a porn thing. That's what it's no. Like. <laughs> it sounds like it, but no. Uh, Chiller, Chiller just closed. Uh, full screen just closed. Like yeah, you have so many of these subscription services that keep popping up and closing, like we are reaching sort of a point where there is only going to be Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. That'll be it. Yeah, it's it's like, yeah, I'm so like, uh, I'm always surprised by how, like I get everyone's competing, but yeah, the amount of platforms, like you, you were saying, like I didn't even know about all of them. Every once in a while, it's, you know, like whatever, uh, what do you call it? Brown sugar, but that's all like, but that, I guess that has a name. What I'm saying is this could have been a crackle exclusive had you played your cards right. Yeah. Right, and I, you know, I think that the concern for indie filmmakers with that happening is that as you lose competition, then Netflix is going to st- beat up buyers or sellers. Right. Yeah, and say yeah. you know, um, it's it's sort of a, a re- you know reasonable to pad uh, someone's buyout on a movie with with whatever Netflix will pay them. But if Netflix can just say, oh, we're just going to pay you zero dollars, but it'll have a home, otherwise it will have no home. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, yeah that's, that's that's monopoly. You're, you're relying on iTunes to make all your money back, which isn't really feasible unless you have uh, sort of a A list or B list cast that you can lean on. Oh, and that's another thing that's interesting the the uh, the A list and B list cast. The the nature of celebrity itself is sort of shifting and collapsing. What a star meant five years ago is completely different than what it means today. Do stars even exist anymore? Like, you know, we we have. An era where you have, in in the crazy cultural flattening of the digital age, which I keep bringing up over and over again, because I truly do think that 10 years ago, five years ago even, this movie would have a wide theatrical distribution and would be selling out theaters. But today, it's just a completely different ballgame. The way I... Brain fart, brain fart, brain fart, brain fart. Hold on. Oh, right. So, casts themselves... It used to be not too long ago that there was a distinction between a movie star, a TV actor, and someone who did stuff online. And that was actually weirdly enforced by the Hollywood studio system. And that these walls have completely dissolved in just probably the last three years alone. So what is what makes somebody a, a star anymore is the big question. Because your cast is fantastic, and none of them are particularly... I would say A-list or B-list. Hell, I'm not, you know, I was acting for a while. I wouldn't even call myself B-list or C-list. Like I just, it, it, it is a, uh, 
that that what what does it mean anymore to be if does that make any sense my question what does it mean anymore to be a bankable uh piece of talent or actor for in, in a film when when that has is I feel like now more so than ever yeah there only is a certain there's really only a select few if you look at movies that come out i feel like it's kind of like not like there's only like the blockbuster movies there's only a handful of people and so many people have gone back to TV now. I feel like because of what we're talking about with um, all the digital platforms, that's actually it's. I feel like it's almost even more sought after now to be a TV star, which is so strange because it did flip. You know, where I feel like if you were like a movie star before, that would be you'd almost turn your nose up to that. Yeah, like Nicole um, Kidman, The Rock. The Rock is the biggest mm-hmm. action star in the world, and he has a TV yeah. show on HBO. Well, the big the big joke we made about Bright yeah. was that Netflix convinced Will Smith to turn himself into a TV star again. Like they, they, uh, you know, when we have a certain amount of money, when we when we're in an economy where where people have less purchasing power and and more, and and we have a flattened uh, sort of internet culture where everyone is competing for the same eyeballs in the same time, it's sort of bound to happen. Where you sort of you have. Donald Trump, Happy Hunting, uh, Disney's Black Panther, uh, Joanne Reed, Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, Taylor Swift, you know, uh, (laughs) uh, Jordan Peterson, Chapo Trap House, like all in the same room competing for the same (laughs) eyeball. Like it's it's weird that we are all – you know, there was that terrible Thomas Friedman book I remember reading as a kid called The World is Flat that talked about globalization and the internet and how, like, it's a good thing that people, you know, can now do American-style business everywhere all the time online. But I do think about it and I wonder, like, because – and maybe it's because everything's on demand and maybe it's because there isn't entertainment online that is, you know, local-specific – but we now have like a completely national, uh, a national-based sort of entertainment system. Everything we do is based on the wider world rather than just our own. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think a big part of it with VOD and Netflix is you're competing for you're you're competing against other thumbnails mm-hmm. on a screen. There's a screen of twenty thumbnails, and part of the value of having talent in it is if you can capture someone's attention for five seconds to click on your yeah. thumbnail. They're going to watch your movie. But that's almost like in a lot of cases, I think, where the star power ends because you don't have people really seeking out movies that feature their favorite movie star in the way that they used to. Right. I mean, the brands are the stars. I mean, great example is Terrence Howard and Don Cheadle as uh, War Machine and Iron Man. Terrence Howard walked away from War Machine. Marvel replaced him with Don Cheadle and audiences didn't really freak out. Mm -hmm. They let it go. Uh, there were a few people that were mad online, but they were pretty much ignored, unfortunately. I know that Leslie and I were two of them. Yeah, uh, yeah but, uh, I, I still haven't forgiven them for how they did my boy. Um, and that's why, you know, even though I, I'm required to see Black Panther this week and I will not be happy about it, you know, because Terrence so Howard... So you, you are going to see yeah, it. Yeah, Terrence Howard was the first black superhero of the MCU, goddammit. And I, I am disgusted that he's being erased. Yeah. Well, look, they erase Blade, they erase Spawn. I mean, it's it's the the marketing for Black Panther is so weird because it's all about it's a woke washing where it's you know uh, 
if you if you like black people, you better go give Disney twenty bucks. That was the pitch, <laughs> and it's just very cringy. So I, that that does bring in the question. So why have ha, didn't you um, market the movie as if you hate Trump, you should watch this horror movie? You could have done that. You could have made this the Resist this movie. I here's here's a weird thing about Happy Hunting, which is that. There are also people who are very red state who have seen it and get a different message out of it. Love yeah, it. I saw some of that. Like, what? What? Uh, one of them was like, I know one person said um, that was like, "Oh wow, this is the rare movie that's political, but you know, keeps it really uh, you know under its sleeve and doesn't annoy you." One person, <laughs> person said, that, "Like, there's literally like the wall is there and it's bad, mm-hmm. but he still." I think we, we wanted to make. A fun movie people could enjoy. I think we put a lot of sort of touch cultural touchstones like the border wall in there. Uh, but there's there's really except for the scene where the sheriff says, you know, in uh, in other towns people let their homeless die out in public. There's really no moralizing that goes on. So I think people see a lot of symbolism and hopefully they connect it. But if they choose not to connect it, then that's. Everyone, yeah, everyone in it has some good side, some bad side. Honestly, like, I don't think we wanted to come in and be super heavy handed. I don't, I don't want to get too tied up in the politics. I don't, you know, I don't give a shit if someone's, you know, left or right, if they want to watch it and have a good time. Like, I don't want to get tied up in that. So I think that was the other thing too. But, you know, like Joe said, it, it's interesting because some people uh, from different ends, they find, you know, what, what did they, they find, people what, find their own meaning. What do they one, see? One, one, yes, sir. Um, I think they see the hunting culture. I think they see the sort of town of of just lower income white people who are sort of who are who are washed out and you know sort of have their way of life ending. I think they they see something in that, which I, I don't think we really intended to have have that be a, a message there. But I, I think people sort of connect with the town more than the people being hunted, which is kind of terrifying. But. Uh, that is something that uh, people have responded to. Uh, I remember we talked. We've talked a few times about the scene where the sheriff says, "You know, uh, as a kid, I went to Dallas, and you know, I saw this this homeless lady died on the sidewalk, and no one was helping her. And that's not how we handle things here." And we had a guy that was at a film festival who was very upset about that scene, and stood up during the Q and A and was, was was angry with us. And he was angry with us because he thought we were shit talking Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> And he was like, why would you say that about Dallas? Is it because it's a red state? You want to make fun of the red states? And we're like, well, the sheriff probably hasn't been to Manhattan. <laughs> so we just picked like a big city that he's realistically uh, been to. Jacksonville, whatever, dude. You know, uh, this guy's like, well, why, why are you shit talking Dallas? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting because we, we, you know, we were fortunate enough to kind of get this. We did like a cool little uh, festival circuit around the world. And we went, um, we didn't go to all of them, but we ended up going to... Um, we were in Glasgow, and then we also went to um, uh, Korea. We were in South Korea. And it's so interesting because people, it's interesting to see their perspective of what they, um, you know, a, a, what they see as American. Because we definitely had some people who were like, yeah, that's what it's like, you know. <laughs> like, almost like it's a documentary we were joking around. Like, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen. And then people in Korea would be like, oh, what did, you know you know, what did Trump think or something? And, you know, we made a joke saying like we knew him and they bought it and we're like, nah, we're kidding. But like, yeah, we asked him, but like, it's so, it, the global, you know, it, global viewers, it was so interesting to see everyone's take on it. Um, yeah, I can definitely I think, see was it. People in France thought like, they, they people like, in France thought, it, well, I think people internationally, when I talk to people who've come to the United States and they're like, 
genuinely like afraid of being shot. Yeah, yeah. I lived in Japan for four years. I taught high, uh, high school students. They literally thought like everyone in America constantly had a gun out, basically. Like that was the number one thing they thought about Americans. Yeah, it's like people, I, I, I have family in Australia and people would be like, oh, like um, heard about that, you know, gang shooting on the news. Are you okay? And I'm like, I didn't hear about that. I mean, <laughs> fuck, they happen. It's terrible. They happen all the time. But it's like, yeah, like you don't have to be worried. They'd be like worried to come here maybe because they think that, you know, maybe they were, someone's going to shoot them. But I'm like, no, I mean, I've never seen a shooting. I've never seen a gun. So, I mean, I've seen a gun, but. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk, um, we'll talk one more thing. Let's talk a little bit about the main character, Warren, played by uh, Martin, do you say, do you do the Dingle full Wall. name? Martin, yeah. Martin Dingle-Wall. Martin Dingle-Wall. Dingle Wall, yeah. He did, he did what I do, the three name <laughs> thing. It's for right. Google ability, folks. Serial killers and uh, cool guys. Serial killers, presidential assassins, and actors who want to cool have their names found on <laughs> yeah. Google. Uh, how, for, first of all, how'd you cast him? Martin came into an audition and just crushed it. He, yeah. he, he came in and did, because he's Australian, uh, he came in and did uh, an American accent and then left. And we looked him up online and we're like, yeah. who? And, then, and then he was Australian online. And we're like, and we're is like, he full? Which is the fool? Who's, who's the real Martin? Like, and we watched back Australian the tape. Video or? We watched back the tape and like we couldn't, it, he did, he, he just came in and crushed it harder than anyone else. And we were so happy, especially since, you know, we didn't have the big budget and like, we were like lucky to get him. And, you know, he's, he's, he's done other stuff and he kind of, um, he, he was just in the process of coming from, from here, from Australia and it kind of, and, uh, he was looking for new management and it just kind of worked out that we like got him in the room. Um, otherwise we probably might've not been able to get him. Yeah. It's, and, it, uh, I just want to say it's really, you know, brave of you to cast an immigrant in the film in this <laughs> uh, society and culture. Just, those, just those, amazing. Those dirty Australians, those criminals. <laughs> But yeah, no, he was, he was, um, he really went above and beyond and, um, um, uh, you know, this, um, he's, he, he's really talented and, uh, I mean, when you're doing a movie on this budget that has a lot of action, you can't afford stunt coordinators. Mm -hmm. It's just not, it's not possible. So you have to have actors who are he was willing, willing to play around in the dirt. Yeah. He's, bit. uh, Martin's kind of a man of the earth. He's like down to roll around in the dirt, jump off a hill. Sometimes he, he rides his motorcycle across the country, like sleeps like, like by rocks and stuff. He's just like, just what you imagine, just like rugged Australian dude. That's Martin. So he was down to kind of slum it and he was loving every minute of it. Yeah. He's um, and then all, obviously all the other actors were great too. We got really fortunate to um, find the people we did. Uh, that's, that's the big, biggest thing with, with an, if you're doing an independent film, I think take the time to cast mm -hmm. because casting is relatively inexpensive. And when you're on set, if so, if someone can't nail it out the gate, you just don't have time to workshop it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah Ken the biggest, I think the biggest thing with budgets people never account for is days. People think of a budget as like, oh, we can blow up a car, we can do X, Y, and Z. It's really just how many days you have. Mm -hmm. And feeding people and giving them, you know, if if they're if they're not on location, giving them some slight per diem and just taking care of their mm -hmm. basic basic needs. <laughs> And not not letting your cast die. <laughs> what what I really liked about Martin and his performance, it was really good, really good. But I liked that he was an addict, and it didn't feel like you were supposed to be judging him for being an addict. Like he was sick. Like addiction mm -hmm. was presented as an illness, which it is, which caused him to you know do bad things. But it wasn't like we were sitting in judgment of him 
at right. for being an alcoholic, which you mm-hmm. don't usually see. He's still. Yeah, he's not a. Yeah. I think the movie's not trying to make you uh, pity him as much as yeah. sort of just I mean, look, be he, along he, on the ride for him. He makes his bad, you know. He 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 f's up, and he's got to, you know. But he's also, yeah. We we wanted to give him a little bit of compassion. He's not a bad guy, and you know, he's he's a little bit of a charmer. So that so I think that helped it along. Did you think that the uh, the the arc with uh, with Bow Dog was was sort gave him uh, you know redemption or, or and a potential for redemption? I think there's a guy he shoots in the first scene of the movie, and I, I think yeah, I think he sort of you know is is torn about that, um, and that that's definitely like a, a thing that he deals with throughout. I, I think that's probably more of a moralizing arc for him than his addiction, because mm-hmm. I think addiction in movies is so often treated as this sort of all-consuming uh, moral issue that a character has. And the reality is when people are addicts, they also have lives outside of that. They have friends and things they do, and you know they have a sort of exterior world besides addiction. And I think it becomes like such a singular factor that uh, defines a character in movies. And we didn't really want to go there with that. Yeah. It's more fun just to watch someone get fucked up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on, we all get fucked up. <laughs> let's see so when you when you uh when you decided to we're gonna make this thing we're gonna we're gonna get the crew and cast together we're gonna hire joe toronto and bryson and we're, we're gonna joe do toronto it. is a hard sell was it really <laughs> he's the best. joe toronto is one of the producers he's he's uh he's an outrageous guy he's to the viewers very very fun guy we'll have him on the show sometime. you got to talk to him about you were talking about where are the stars he, you know he does a whole thing on that where are my movie stars you should have him talk <laughs> you should have him talk about that and where are my where am where are jojo stars joe gets stars off of twitter <laughs> that's where he found me <laughs> yeah he's really so nice. happy hunting is a class conscious horror thriller that takes place in what is now Trump's America? It's got shootouts. It's got drug addiction. It's got chases. It's got border walls. It's got uh, a, a portrait of a white America in decline. I, I can't recommend it enough. It's a really, really fun thriller. Uh, what are you guys working on next? Writing some new projects. Um, just trying to see sort of what goes next. You can't, you know, we're trying to have enough plates in the air that. Uh, Things can move along concurrently, so it's again we're sort of staying, stay, you know, trying to trying to up the budgets a little bit, but we're not trying to make the jump to. Mm-hmm. And and are you, are you are you are you're still you you want to stay in the feature world? You haven't decided that you're going to make television. Oh, I love to. We, we try to bounce to. around. I think it's again everything's just sort of about having eyeballs on it these days. There's not we have, there's not know, just not the delineation we anymore. Kinda, we have stuff sitting on a computer that if someone wants it, we could probably go. <laughs> if someone wants to make a series, sure. <laughs> and it's all kind of one thing now. You know? I know. <laughs> I think I think the, it, that is so interesting because you know I remember like in film school that wasn't even talked about doing TV. It was like oh you're gonna go do movies, and I remember. Never thinking that that would be anything I'd want to do. And then all of a sudden when that switched, I'm like, it's almost more exciting to me because you get to kind of explore a world, explore characters, dive in. You know, you don't have an hour and a half. You have, you know, possibly seven years to build something out. So TV is definitely exciting. Okay. So I I have a question. I just saw this on the IMDb page. I have a serious question and then this question. On the IMDb page, it says that Joe Toronto had never tasted cheese before he got to the set of this, this is, film. 
This is true. He's one of the worst Italians. Yeah, he claimed to be the best Italian, which is factually inaccurate. Just yeah. Uh, and then yeah, and then he like he doesn't like cheese. Yeah, and then he was like, yo, he was like, yo, is how he talks. Yo, what's that cheese? And it was like, oh, that's uh, Parmesan, Joe. Have you never seen that? He's like, Beep. that's what he did. <laughs> Joe's never had Parmesan until eating. You got to talk to him about it. But 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 his wife Marie made me a chicken. Well, parm. after he came back, he told her he's like, yo, Marie, we got to get that stuff. <laughs> she's, like, oh. <laughs> she's like, oh, what the Parmesan? You guys can dig deeper on the issue when you have him in here. But yeah, when we get him on, we'll 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 put him in the we'll put him in the hot seat over there. And and, and the second question I have is so after all the stuff that goes on in the movie, not to spoil it for anyone, but next year, do they still have the hunt? Oh, oh. Oof, that'll, well, that'll, that'll be up to the There was you know, an original. Well, there was an original. If we had the budget, there was there was an alt ending that we had talked about. Where if you had the budget, you had Warren instead of spoiler instead of escaping in the end, he kind of comes back to the town and just messes everyone up. So everyone's still kind of alive for the most part. I feel like their spirits are hurt. I but think they could. Yeah, I, th- I think they'll regroup. If someone wanted to pay for a sequel, I think we'd consider it and try something different. Maybe though, maybe do it somewhere else, not there. But yeah, I think the next one should take place in space. It, it, it could um, <laughs> on a ship. I'm being an asshole. Uh, All right, with so, an alien. <laughs> so, Joe Deach, Louis Gibson, happy hunting. Watch it online. Thanks so much for coming on to Struggle. Thanks for having us, guys. Thanks for having us, guys. Thank you so much. Hey all, I'm Bushido Squirrel, and I'm currently hosting podcasts for Ground Game. Ground Game Los Angeles is a team of organizers that focus on hyper-local solutions and problems. We also publish Knock LA, which is our muckraking journalism outlet. We're always starting marches, yelling at Nazis, fighting with customs officials at LAX. If there's a progressive fight to pick in LA, we're going to be there. We know that the best way to seize political power is by activating and organizing your community. And we want to give you some help on that. Ground Game, we're out here. Come join us. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.